0: I have the privilege of introducing our speaker today, and I wrote down my jokes, so I did. It's quite long. <laughs> I want to settle one thing right now. Um, now, his name is spelled a certain way, but it's pronounced a different way, and I hear all the time, Professor Conold, and I want to settle that today. It's Coneold, so it's Coneold. Um, it's like an old cone, but you say it how Yoda would, so Conold. <laughs> so everyone say Conold. So no more. Conold. No Conolding, no. Most of you know him as Professor Conold or Pastor Bruce or even Bruce. I know him as Papa Bruce, uh, because he's the only man on God's green Earth to have tucked me into bed and kissed me on my forehead at the age of 23 (laughs) Um, because Asian dads don't do that. His wife, whom I know, is Mama Tammy. She makes the best lemon bars I've ever had in my life and talk about a food coma, after those there's no coming back. He has um, two dogs and three grown monkey, I mean children. Uh, Abby graduated from Crown just this year, and there's Sarah. Sarah is at Northwestern, and Max is PSCOing at. Man. Trying. Try not good enough, apparently. Um, he is a hunter, and he's a good one at it, uh, because unlike the shark in Nemo, this Bruce thinks that. Be our friends. Are they friends or food? He's so good at hunting that when he goes hunting, even the bears play dead. So yeah. to introduce him to you today, I prepared three trivia questions and I texted them to him over the weekend. His favorite topping for pizza is sausage, mm-hmm. which is great because he can pick up the phone and order decisively Domino's or, God forbid, Pizza Hut. Um, And what is life if you can't order decisively what you want in your pizza? I asked him to pick his favorite child, but he copped out and said, baby Jesus. (laughs) I meant blood from your blood, so don't get all spiritual with me. He also thinks that all asparagus should be grilled, which I agree. (laughs) He's the pastor of Egan Hills Alliance and probably one of the most well-read and well-informed persons I know. Whenever I stay over at his house, we have really good conversations late into the night on theology, culture, comedy, I mean politics. And so, you know, it's been fun. You'll probably have him as your apologetics professor if you are a nursing major or if you are a ministry major because he is a world religions genius, and you need the credits. So, join me in welcoming Professor Bruce Conold.
1: Wow. Love being with you. Um, so let's start with one thing really clear. There's one God. Right? The Bible's really clear about this. There's one God. There's one way to that God. We are to take, our commission as Christians, is to take that one way to that one God to all the peoples of the planet Earth. Clear enough? And the Bible, this is the hard one, makes it explicit that the followers of other religions are deceived by the evil one. Those are the four main points that drive a lot of my study these days to remember there's one God, There's one way to that God through the Lord Jesus Christ and through his atoning death on the cross and by faith in the gospel we proclaim to the world. And if we're to take that one way to to all the nations and remember that the, the, the idols, the gods of the nations, are not gods. They're literally, as the Bible says over and over, sacrificing to demons. It's a very bizarre truth. In our very pluralistic, relativistic world, what I just said, is incredibly offensive. I'm very well aware of that but it's true it's true here's what scripture says in Psalm 135 your name O Lord endures forever your renown O Lord through all generations for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants the idols of the nations are silver and gold made by the hands of men they have mouths but they can't speak eyes but they can't see ears but they can't hear nor is there any breath in their mouths, and those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Join me as I pray. So, Father, I ask now, as we think about the idols of the nations, as we think about all the nations and the religions of this world, as we try to put some of this in perspective, I ask for your guidance in your leadership now. And I ask this in the name of Jesus, the one true Savior of the world. Amen. So, next one. So, as I, I've been studying world religions very aggressively in the last few years, and uh, academically. And a few things I'm presenting to you today are what I'll call some of my little surprises along the way. This is my first surprise, that in a space from about here to Rapid City, South Dakota, three of the major world religions were founded. The three major religions are what we call the Abrahamic traditions in religious studies. And that would be, of course, Judaism... Christianity and Islam. Did you know that over half the world follows a religion uh, from a region that small? Isn't that interesting? Next point. And another 20 percent of the world follows a religion from somewhere close in a region in India. Actually, it should be smaller than that circle implies. But uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, and Sikhism. And so if you put those two together, three out of every four people on this planet follow a religion from one of those two little regions, just a few hundred miles around. Well, that kind of stunned me when I learned that. I just thought that was interesting. Now, what's even more interesting before we go on, I'll just mention this right here, is that, and I'm going to develop this more, is that the religions out of the Abrahamic tradition share what we'll call family resemblances, and the religions out of the Indian traditions also share very clear family resemblances. I'm going to flesh out what I mean by family resemblances in a minute, but let's complete the chart. Next point. There's a, what we can call modernist Western traditions. And this would be like a, kind of our European, uh, Western European American traditions, which are more what we just call secular, agnostic, atheistic, I put deistic in there. But about 14% of the planet... Uh, follows what we call kind of a modern Western secular scheme. So if you put all that together, that is 89% or so, 90% of the world follows one of these three branches. This kind of defines our planet in a big way. One of these three major camps. Isn't that just fascinating? Okay, there's a few more. There's like 111%, so let's put those up there, the last couple. And so there's some tribal religions and some folk religions out of the... uh, Asia for Chinese, Japanese traditions, the Far Eastern traditions, and some North American and other uh, African tribal religions, Aboriginal traditions. But those are all very maybe 10 or 11% of the world. So we're not going to focus on that today. We're going to focus on the first three today. So the next slide. So thinking about the Abrahamic traditions, I said there's some family resemblances. This is among Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. I'm by no means now you see me visualize, visualize for me. I'm jumping up and down, waving my hands and yelling, but I'm not going to do that. That'd be awkward. But I'm just making this point very clearly. I believe in Jesus. I said there's one God, one way to that God. I'm by no means trying to dignify Judaism or Islam in this comparison. I'm just doing kind of a religious thing, a world religion study, and showing a family resemblance from a region. Okay? Hear that very clearly. So in that region... These are the only three monotheistic religions in the world. Isn't it curious they all come from a few hundred miles of each other? These are also the only three religions that really rely on what we think of as a linear time span. That is, there's a creator. They all three believe that. Other religions don't hold that view, generally. There's a creator. There's a development throughout history. And there's a consummation to world history. You realize that thought pattern is shared by these three religions and none other. Isn't that interesting? They also are what we call firmly textual religions. That is, that Jews have an Old Testament Torah, we follow the Bible, and the Quran is what Muslims follow. And those are all three religions view their scriptures as a textual guide where God has spoken to humans and is inspired in an inerrant. You realize no other religion holds such a view, just those three. This is what we call family resemblances, isn't it? They're quite strong. Uh, spiritual. What I mean by this is that it's not a naturalistic, it's not a mythical. They believe in a spiritual world and a spiritual life and angels and demons, things like that. Objective, I'm going to contrast this better in just a minute with the Eastern traditions, but objective, we're talking about believing in the world and that we can know things about the world and we can make reasoned statements about the world as it really is. That's objective studies. These three religions share that view. No other religion on the world in the world shares what I just said. Uh, Also, the afterlife. These three are utterly unique in that they all believe in a heaven and hell or a paradise and hell or something can do that in an afterlife and that people will know each other in the afterlife. You realize no other religion in the world believes that. So when I say family resemblances among the Abrahamic traditions, I do mean family resemblances and they're quite strong and they're really interesting. Next slide. Comparing that now to the eastern traditions, this is Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, and Sikhism. You may not know what a couple of those are, that's okay. In fact, I prefer that you don't. But uh, (laughs) the Indian traditions, they are, by contrast, polytheistic or pantheistic, and they are the leaders in the world in being polytheistic and pantheistic. There's some others that share that, but not many. They believe in a cyclical view of history. In other words, that history is going, going from, coming from nowhere and going nowhere. It just goes round and round It repeats itself over and over again. And it's just uh, ongoing, eternal, as it were. Oral tradition, they don't really trust textual sources, and no Buddhist or Hindu is very interested in those. Uh, they have them, but they're not that important to them. What matters is what their master or their guru says. And so the oral tradition is what rides supreme in these religious views. Mythical, as opposed to spiritual, it's not so much guided by the spiritual life that we might have say in following christ in the middle uh, middle one but it's more of a following a mythical story this is what counts orienting yourself around the myth subjective as opposed to objective subjective is my subjective experience is what matters so i understand it's basically my world not the world that matters my world i know what i get to experience that's the subjective, as opposed to the world that can be studied and known under the Abrahamic traditions. And finally, Eastern traditions all share a view and reincarnation of some kind that they'll come back cyclical over and over and over again. Now, isn't it quite interesting that as we compare these two, these are two what I will call just radically different views of the world. And there's a family traits of traditions. Uh, religious traditions out of the middle one, and a family trait of, re- of religious traditions on the Indian, and they each come out of certain regions, and they've, 75% of the world follows w- one of these up here. I just thought that was interesting. Next slide. I just added this this last week, so I mean, I'm literally making all this stuff up, so I don't hope it's right, but uh, I just uh, added this one this last week, and thought, oh, this is kind of cool, I'll just add some for the Western side. And so, I've been working on it for a year or so, making it up, but I have been just kind of creating it myself. Um, so the Western tradition, here we see um, secular or atheistic, again, this is more your Eastern European and uh, American, notice modernist, I am thinking since the, um, the Enlightenment, and so uh, secular, atheistic, and that's very different than having a monotheistic or polytheistic world. Linear is like the Abrahamic tradition. Scientific is what really, really is our, uh, uh, what is our uh, a test for truth, is we use a scientific method, not a text or not oral tradition. Naturalistic, instead of being spiritual or mythical, what matters is it's just a natural, everything comes from a natural view, and if it can't be, that's why miracles are ruled out in a modernist Western tradition. Um, critical, that's my best word I could come up with, as opposed to objective or subjective, is critical of the world. There can be, you can say there's a world out there, but can we really know it? And that's kind of the critical, what do I mean by that? And then mortalism, as opposed to the afterlife belief of Christians and Jews and Muslims, uh, or reincarnation of Indian traditions, uh, Western traditions, just believe once you're dead, you're gone. It's over. Next slide. So, what I was, as I've been thinking about this, and um, I've been studying a lot in different world religions, taking courses and all that, and, um, and I was doing some research on Buddha, and I know you think, Buddha? Yeah, Buddha. Siddhartha Gautama. Cool guy, if he lived. And... Um, the, the traditional dates given for Buddha's life are 563 to 480. So what I want to do is I want to think for you for about three or minutes, three four minutes about Buddha. This will be a crash course like none other. It will be quick, okay? But what I want to do is I want to think about trying to look at an Indian tradition, the one on the right on your handout. That's why I gave you a handout from a Western or Middle Eastern perspective. What I want to show you is how crazy it becomes. Okay, that's my point. I want to show you how kind of how crazy it is. So. Buddha is said to have lived 563 to 480. Next one. And the first biographies of his life were written around 100 B.C. So, you know, four or 500 years after he died, they thought maybe we should write about his life. Okay, cool. Next one. And the first copies we have available are from about 1500 A.D. Okay? And so, and then the really good copies are from like 1800 A.D. And so we're talking there's a good 2,000 plus years from when he lived to when we actually have something we can read about Buddha's life. And everyone's okay with that, I guess, all right? And the next point is that the biographies are wildly divergent. This is Buddhist talking now, wildly divergent. And they show him to have lived somewhere between 1027 and 478. He has over 300 names used in Europe for the Buddha prior to 1800, and actually, the rest of the story is there's dozens of Buddhist traditions that have probably, over the last couple hundred years, been coalesced into one Buddha tradition that's become dominant. And so to say there's actually one Buddha that we're actually following is probably not even realistic at all historically. There's fat Buddhas, there's skinny Buddhas, there's tall Buddhas, there's short Buddhas, there's female Buddhas, there's male Buddhas, there's all kinds of Buddhas out there. And, and so from a Western perspective, what's the next statement, is there one more? So. Uh, from a, well, I'll, we can leave that there. So from a Western perspective, um, we really don't think we can know much about the Buddha. It sounds like a bunch of myth and hooey and who could ever have any idea about it. But Buddhists don't care. In fact, one of my friends, uh, Sang Munig, who's a high monk down in Hampton, not, not too far from where I live, and I've, I've presented all this to him, and he asked me a question. He goes, oh, I said, well, so well, what do you think about this? Is this, uh, how can you believe in Buddha? He goes, my master told me. Remember the oral tradition? My master told me. And I said, but the evidence is against it. You know, how do you know when he lived? And he said, why are you so concerned about one incarnation? Buddha was incarnate millions of times. Why do you focus on one? See the cyclical reincarnation worldview coming into play? You see how it's so different to try to reason from a Western mindset to an Eastern mindset? Very challenging. Next slide. Well, I said we're done with Buddha. We'll be done. So now, what I want to talk to you about for just a few minutes is that I, I hope that some of you, some of you, will decide that you want to actually leave Crown College and go off and try to witness and share your faith, especially cross-culturally, and I hope even overseas somewhere. I really hope that many of you will choose to do that. That's my earnest prayer. And uh, as you do that, there's a few things you probably ought to have in your mind in your reserve bank as you try to talk to people from other, other countries and other regions of the world. And some of it is these, what I'll call, five implications for Christian missions as we try to share our faith. First one's this, is that Christianity, uh, somewhat like Buddhism in, in Islam, is not, eth- it's not an ethnically driven religion. Let me just say what I mean there. Um, you may not know this, but almost all the religions of the world are ethnically based. Did you know that? They're almost all. Christianity, Buddhism, and Islam are the only three that actually have any care of going cross-cultural, really. The rest of them are all very content to be within an ethnicity and to operate there. It's a very interesting thing. But Christianity, by far, is the most cross-culturally minded because we're following a mandate from Jesus to take the gospel around the world of the various ethnos. Remember the Great Commission? We're called to go and take the gospel to different places. And so while other religious traditions are ethnically driven, Christianity is not. So as we take the gospel out, we have to remember that people we're going to are not used to the idea that someone should come to them with their religious views, if we want to call it that, and try to share with them because they don't share that they should go do that with you. That's why you encounter so often, hey, that's fine for you to believe that. I believe what I believe because they're so used to it. It's, part of their, it's also part of their ethnic makeup. And that, of course, is challenging. They're like, well, that's part of your ethnic makeup. You're like, no, Jesus is for all of us. It's a different thing. It's something to keep in mind as you try to share Jesus to the world. Second point is this. Christianity is a Middle Eastern Abrahamic tradition in clear conflict, I'd like to say, with Western modernist and Eastern Indian traditions. As Christians, as we seek to communicate the gospel to those in the West and to those in the East, we need to seek to communicate contextually, yes, with sensitivity to the prevailing traditions, yes, but without domesticating or compromising the gospel of Jesus Christ. The... um, so let's, what do I mean by that? Point three. So as Christians seek to evangelize, let's say, a modernist or Western culture or postmodern Western mind, when, when we know that that Western mind, as I pointed out before, is scientific, naturalistic, pessimistic, they're linear, well, then we ought to try to communicate the gospel and with reason and with evidence that speaks to that Western mind. That ought to be how we try to present The gospel. And we're used to that. Those of you who living in America, of course, that's how our Americans think, and we're used to just contextualizing that. But as we do that, we need to remind ourselves that we're contextualizing it for a Western audience, but that isn't necessarily biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity falls out of a Middle Eastern mindset with more of the things I have in the middle column on your handout. As Christians seek to look to the East, to the East and we want to go in to talk to people in India, for example, or, or anywhere else in the East, and we want to talk, present Jesus to them. How do we do that? Do we use reason and evidence? Well, no, that's not going to make any sense to an Eastern mind. They're thinking of oral traditions. They're thinking of myth. They're thinking of cyclical. Any kind of uh, reason and evidence is just not going to speak the same way. So how should we talk to them? Well, people in the East, we present Jesus as the, the archetypal uh, figure, that Jesus is the one to orient your right life around. Like we sang in his songs this morning, sing about Jesus at the center. And it's interesting to me to note that Gandhi, living in India, thought Jesus was worth all the Hindus studying. And so Jesus really is one worth orienting your life around. So when we talk to those in the East, we tell the story of Jesus and call people to follow him. We're not necessarily trying to make a case for the veracity of scripture with reason and evidence like we might do or for miracles like we might do in an apologetics class in the west no, when talking to those in the east we're thinking much more about the beauty of Jesus look at his pure ethical life look at the beauty of his teachings look at how he lived do you see the difference? we probably gotta say this as well conversion to Christianity this is the fifth point And we need to be very clear about this. Conversion to Christianity involves a worldview transformation like none other, especially if somebody's coming from the West to know Christ, or especially from the East to the Middle Eastern faith of Jesus. To conversion to Christianity involves a worldview transformation. In his excellent book, Transforming Transforming Worldviews by Paul Hebert, He writes that this can only happen in the second generation. He says that for someone in the East to come to know Jesus and to become a true follower of Christ, he argues, as an experienced missiologist, he argues that that person cannot actually adopt a full Middle Eastern biblical worldview because they've been so trained in an Eastern mindset that that's not possible, and only their second generation, their kids, have a chance to really take on and understand the Scriptures. I don't know if he's right, but it's interesting to notice how difficult... It is. That's his point. To move from an Eastern mindset to following Christ or from a Western secular mindset, which we encounter here, to following Christ. It takes prayer. It takes time. So Christian missions must seek to find effective means of communicating the gospel to those committed to a different worldview. Whatever it might be, We need to be sensitive. As we go out and do evangelism, as you try to share your one God that you believe in, one way to God, and you're taking it one way to the nations, and the nations' gods are of the evil one, as we try to go out and share Christ in that context, we need to figure out how do we do that with a mindset to thinking skillfully about, am I talking to someone from the east, from the west, and pondering how do I carefully communicate the gospel of Jesus to them? As we do that, we cannot compromise the truthfulness of the Christian worldview. It's so often done. It can't be done. I've read books where people talk about uh, Jesus being another Buddha or Jesus being a guru and that's how to preach Christ among uh, Buddhist people. No, it's not. No, it's not. Christian missions must be committed to the long haul. It does take time to bring someone from an eastern set mindset or a western mindset into a biblical Christian Middle Eastern mindset to understanding the gospels and the truth of God's word with that I want to circle back and say a couple of things very very clearly can you go back to the very first slide Second the second slide second one. as we think about that right there that sometimes when people see that slide I want to make sure you understand what I see when I see this okay when I see this slide, some people look at this and go, "Oh my goodness, Christianity is just one religion among many," and it is a temptation to start doing interreligious studies and just see the family traditions and think, "What does this do? Does this undermine my faith?" I want to be very clear with you, and I want to leave this with you. Make sure that you're really clear with this: is that that's not true. I would view it this way: Judaism obviously is a precursor, the forerunner to the Christian faith. Right? They're one, the Judeo-Christian. Bible we follow in Islam, I would just say, is was it an early cult, if you want to even put it in that language, a new religious upstart, um, in a way messing up the traditions of, of Jewish and Christian faith. But the real message of the world and the largest religion in the world, the Christian faith, is again following the one true God, one way to that God. We're to take that one way to the world. And the gods of the of the world are following demons. That's weird. As awful as that thought is, join me as I pray. Now, Lord God of heaven and earth, we come to you through the one true Savior, Jesus, our Lord. And we ask God that you would be pleased to use us gathered right here to proclaim your truth to the peoples of this world. We ask that you'd make us bold as we present the truth of your gospel to this world, whether it's to those in the East, the Middle East, or the West, whether it's to the Far East, whether to tribal regions, wherever you take us to go. And Lord, I do pray that you'd take several people from this room and you'd send them all around the world with the gospel, your truth. And as they go, that you'd help them to be sensitive to those people in those areas, yes. I pray that you'd help them contextualize and be careful as they present the gospel, yes. Yes. But I pray that you'd make them bold as lions, God. And I pray that you'd help them, raise them up to be clear with your truth so the next generation can hear the truth of your word and be saved through faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior. To his glory, I ask all these things. And everyone said, you are dismissed. <laughs>